Um, welcome to the International Law Section's webinar on challenges for the International Criminal Court. My name is Kim West. I'm a partner at the Ashcroft Law Firm, and I am honored to lead this discussion with our esteemed panel. Um, I recognize that this subject matter is not something that domestic lawyers in Massachusetts are necessarily familiar, but I know that Many of you are tuning in because you have a real curiosity as to what happens in The Hague. I know that I do. I would like to introduce the panel. My introductions will be terribly truncated in view of our limited time. First, um, Alex Whiting is the head of investigations at the Kosovo Specialist Prosecutor's Office in The Hague. He's currently on leave from Harvard Law School where he teaches, writes, and consults on domestic and international criminal prosecution issues. Alex served as the investigations coordinator at the ICC, overseeing all of the investigations in the office, and also as the prosecutions coordinator, overseeing all of the prosecutions. Alex is a former ICTY prosecutor and a former AUSA in the District of Massachusetts. Alex started his career in the criminal section of the Civil Rights Division at DOJ. Beth Van Skok is the Leah Kaplan Visiting Professor in Human Rights at Stanford Law School. Beth returned to Stanford after stepping down as deputy to the ambassador at large for war crimes issues in the Office of Global Criminal Justice at the US Department of State. Earlier in her career, Beth was with the Center for Justice and Accountability a nonprofit law firm in San Francisco dedicated to the representation of victims of torture and other grave human rights abuses. She is currently, she acts as a supervisor to the center. Beth started her career as a law clerk with the Office of the Prosecutor at the ICTY. Sam Lowry is a barrister at Bankside Chambers in Auckland, New Zealand. Sam's current practice is focused on commercial, regulatory, and criminal cases. Sam is a former Crown prosecutor and has instructed as both defense and prosecution counsel. Sam is also a former ICC prosecutor, and Sam started his career in New York at Cravath, Swain, and more. Um, welcome, everyone. Sam, I want to start off with you. Um, and ask you to give us some background on the ICC, how it was created, and importantly, its jurisdiction. We have a very broad audience here from different backgrounds, and I think this would be a good way to start. Thanks, Kim, and hello, everyone. Um, if it looks like I've just rolled out of bed, it's because I've just rolled out of bed. It's um, <laughs> five past four in the morning in New Zealand. Um, so with that background, let me give you the Wikipedia guide of what the ICC is um, and what it does and what it can't do. So the ICC is a treaty-based organization. Uh, it's a court that a number of member states have joined. And effectively, what, what those states have done is they've given away a little slice of their national, national sovereignty to a supranational court uh, that is tasked with uh, investigating and prosecuting certain crimes when states cannot or will not do so. So the court came into being uh, in 2002 uh, when the requisite number of states parties had uh, ratified the Rome Statute that uh, is the founding document of the court. Right now there are 123 member states. So that's roughly two kind of two thirds of the, of the states uh, in the world. There are some biggies that aren't there, uh, most notably the United States, uh, Russia, and China. Jurisdiction, uh, so what can the International Criminal Court do? Um, well, it doesn't issue uh, parking tickets for, um, for violations of international, um, international traffic laws. It's, it's very narrow in its jurisdiction. It can, it can prosecute four crimes. First is are war crimes. The second are what we call crimes against humanity. The third is genocide. And the fourth is aggression. So um, at the risk of completely butchering the actual legal definition of those crimes, let me tell you in uh, real world terms what they are. Um, war crimes, that is breaking the laws of war. So believe it or not, there are rules in war. 
And war crimes is essentially an act that constitutes a serious violation of those rules of law, rules of war. So a good example would be uh, killing prisoners. That would be a war crime. Crimes against humanity, there are a number of enumerated acts uh, that when committed purposely as part of a widespread or systematic attack or policy against a civilian population uh, can constitute a crime against humanity. Uh, so um, forcible transfer, transfer or deportation could constitute a crime against humanity. Genocide, that's the biggie. That is uh, an intentional act to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnic, racial or religious group. Uh, in the news recently with uh, President Biden's acknowledgement of the Armenian genocide uh, in the early 20th century, uh, which as acknowledged was an attempt to uh, wipe out in whole or in part uh, Armenian uh, people of Armenian ethnicity in the Ottoman Empire. Uh, aggression is the last one. That's kind of a, that's a bit like pornography. It's kind of, you know it when you see it. Um, so that's a, a specific type of crime where a person plans, initiates, or executes an act of aggression using state military force, which by its character, gravity, and scale constitutes a manifest violation of the Charter of the United Nations. What does that mean? Well, no one knows. It's never been tested. Um, breaking the breaking the rules of um, international norms with regard to war is probably the best way to describe it. Uh, for example, uh, some of the Third Reich um, annexations of uh, Eastern European countries uh, that led to the Second World War would probably have constituted aggression. Uh, where physically can the ICC prosecute? Well, territorially, uh, it has jurisdiction over uh, any over crimes committed on the territory uh, or vessels of a state party. Um, it also has territorial jurisdiction where the Security Council has referred a matter to the court. And who can it prosecute? Well, it can prosecute people who are either uh, citizen, uh, citizens of nationals of a state party. So that's a state that signed up, one of those 123 states, uh, or that are, or who commit a crime on the territory of a state party, um, or where the Security Council has referred a matter to the court. So, for example, New Zealand is a state's party, is a state party. The United States is not. If I went to Texas and uh, committed a crime against humanity, the ICC uh, could possibly prosecute me, even though the United States is not a party. So it's got a bit of long arm jurisdiction there. The, the final thing I'll say on jurisdiction is it has this, the ICC is set up to be a court of last resort, not first resort. It has a regime which is called complementarity, which means that the court cannot prosecute if a domestic jurisdiction is doing a proper good faith prosecution or has done so. The idea being the ICC uh, wants to enable and allow domestic jurisdictions uh, to do prosecutions themselves. And only if those states are unable or unwilling to do so, can the ICC step in. So Kim, that's uh, the potted summary of what the ICC can uh, and does do. Sam, thank you. Uh, thank you very much. I think that's a, that's a great background for all of us. And as you said, uh, the ICC began in the early 2000s. And Alex, I know you started your career in The Hague at about the same time. Uh, can you tell us about some of the historical successes of the ICC? Um, sure, thanks, Kim. Um, uh, thanks for having us on this webinar. And um, thanks to Sam and Beth. Um, while Sam is just beginning his day a little earlier than he usually does, um, I'm ending my day because I'm in The Hague. So it's uh, at the end of the, my day. Um, you know, I think that the biggest, the biggest success of the ICC to me is that it exists and that it's functioning. Um, and it, we're going to talk about problems that the court faces and challenges and criticisms, and, and there are many, but I think that we always have to remember and step back about the achievement that is there, uh, both in its, in its 
in its existence, but also in some of the things that it's done, which I'll talk about in a second. Um, you know, when I graduated from law school in way back in 1990, um, the, the only international criminal law that existed was in the history books. It was the Nuremberg trials. Um, and there were no international courts. There was no international enforcement of the crimes that Sam has talked about. And after, starting in 1993, there was this extraordinary explosion of creation of institutions to, uh, in, of international institutions to enforce these laws and bring perpetrators to justice. And it, it started with the Yugoslavia Tribunal and the Rwanda Tribunal, and it culminated with the creation of the Interna International Criminal Court. And I was at the Yugoslavia Tribunal when the court was created. And many there were many people who thought, oh, this is, that's too far and that's never gonna work. And you know, they'll never have any cases, uh, but it's worked. Uh, it, the, the institution has established itself. Uh, it's had investigations, uh, arrests, trials, convictions, acquittals, appeals. Um, it's conducted investigations in a, in a wide range of countries, Congo, Central African Republic, uh, Kenya, Uganda, now has investigations going on in Georgia um, and Myanmar, um, and is gonna open some new investigations. Um, a number of people have been convicted. Just today, uh, Dominic Onguin, um, was sentenced to 25 years in prison for war crimes and crimes against humanity. Who is Dominic Onguin? Many of you will not, have, will not know his name, but you'll know who he was associated with. He was a, uh, a, a kind of right-hand man of Joseph Kony. Uh, many of you remember Joseph Kony, uh, Kony 2012, um, rebel leader in Uganda. Um, Anguin was charged along with Kony. Um, he eventually was uh, surrendered to the court in 2015. He was tried, convicted of 61 crimes, sentenced today to 25 years in prison. So um, there, the, we'll talk about the, 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 that maybe there haven't been enough of these trials and convictions, but, there, but, but the court has in its first uh, years of existence, um, and, and in, the, in the time of, in, in the creation of a court system, it's a, it's a blink of an eye since the court was created. It's still a very short time. It's still very much the beginning. Um, there have been an, uh, a handful of trials and convictions. And to me, that is already uh, an achievement. Um, thanks, Alex. And so let's of course follow up with the next question, which is um, what about, what are the historical challenges for the ICC? So the challenge of the, I think the principal challenge of the ICC is in its, in its reach and scope. Um, the, the, um, the ad hoc tribunals as they're called, which are specific international tribunals for particular conflicts like Yugoslavia, Rwanda, Sierra Leone, Cambodia. Um, those were courts that were set up with a specific mandate and, and were able to investigate the conflict or the situation and the perpetrators for a long period of time, some, sometimes more than two decades, and develop a body of evidence and, and cases and really, and really dig in. Um, the, the ICC has taken that model and scaled it up to the entire globe. Uh, as Sam said, it's not, not every country is a member of the court, but two thirds of the uh, world countries are. Um, and so the, the, the court is now investigating in, in 10, 10, 12 different uh, countries around the world um, with very limited resources and very limited power. As, as Sam said, it's a, the ICC is a treaty court. So the states have had to give the power to the court and surrender a bit of, as he said, a slice of their own sovereignty. And the states that did that, uh, it was an extraordinary thing that they did, but they, 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 did, they, were, they were only willing to go so far. So the court's power is limited. It doesn't have police powers to go into any country and conduct investigations and they, they, they rely on cooperation. And it's, it can be, uh, difficult, to say the least, for a court to 
go into a country that is that is often hostile to its investigation and try to develop sufficient evidence to bring strong cases for court. Uh, criminal cases proof beyond a reasonable doubt of individual per perpetrators' crimes. Um, so it's it, the, the reach of the court and its limited resources and limited powers make for very challenging to conduct the task that's been given to it. Um, as you all know, uh, just recently, the Assembly of State Parties um, established an independent expert review and the report was finished last year. It was over 300 pages with almost 400 recommendations. Beth, can you give us a sense of the content of the report and whether the recommendations made sense? Yeah, hi, good morning everyone. Thanks for being here and your interest in these topics and thanks for inviting me. Um, there have long been questions about whether the court was living up to its ideals. And I think some of the challenges that Alex outlined um, really reveal that. There were a number of very high profile acquittals, um, including a reversal of a, um, a judgment of, of guilty that really led people to be, to start to be concerned about some of the working methods that the court was operating under. I think everyone's really conscious of the fact that we can't be judging any particular court by the number of convictions, but the fact that a number of cases were not um, being successful from the perspective of, um, you know, who's being chosen to bring charges against, what arguments are being made in terms of legal responsibility, what evidence was being marshaled, and also some real questions about judicial reasoning. I mean, some of the opinions left many of us who are sort of experts in the field kind of scratching our heads and thinking how on earth did they reach this particular result. And so as a result, there started to be emerging out there within the assemblies of states parties and also within academia, some real concerns about the direction that the court was taking. And um, some very high profile diplomats who were historic supporters of the court had been involved in the creation of the court from the beginning, um, who had led the assemblies of states parties, which is the group of states that have all ratified the state, came out with a very strongly worded, essentially an op-ed or an article that said, we need to step back and rethink this institution, how it's operating, its strategic direction. And that essentially triggered this independent expert review process. Um, they didn't use the word reform, although every once in a while there are certain states that actually substitute reform for review in describing this. And that reveals, I think, some of the tensions within the assemblies of states parties. So they asked Justice Richard Goldstone of South Africa, um, who many of you may know, he was on the Constitutional Court. He was the first chief prosecutor of the Yugoslavia War Crimes Tribunal. You know, an enormous reputation in the field. He chaired this process and it was quite wide ranging. They spoke with a number of interlocutors. They spoke with staff, former and present of the court. They spoke with diplomats. They spoke with countries who had been the subject of investigations or preliminary examinations and compiled, as you said, Kim, about 400 really um, cogent recommendations. Everything from the way the court is structured to personnel, to how investigations are undertaken, to the prioritization, um, et cetera. And one of the main takeaways um, I think that came from the report was that, that undergirds a lot of the specific recommendations are the court, that's the fact that the court is really spread too thin. This gets to the point that um, you know, both Sam and Alex made that it has the potential to be in almost every country because it has nationality jurisdiction over every national of assemblies of states parties members and then all the territory of those members and had undertaken a wide range of what are called preliminary examinations which are simply reviewing a case to determine a situation to determine whether or not it falls within its jurisdiction. So lots of the Office of the Prosecutor resources were sort of servicing these preliminary examinations. And then you had live investigations where the eye, with an eye towards creating actual indictments. And then you also had live trials where there was, it's called a document containing the charges, but it's the equivalent of an indictment in our system where they had a number of individuals that were subjected to live prosecutions. And the sense was that the, the prosecutor in particular was, was spread way too thin and there needed to be a way to expedite matters. Meanwhile, from the judge's perspective, a lot of concerns about collegiality on the bench, a lot of concerns about staff, staff morale, even the word bullying was used to describe some of the um, interpersonal relationships within the institution and some of the judicial reasoning. Um, there were concerns raised about um, clarity there and just the speed at which the court was working. So now the, the situation has bounced back to the organs of the court and the assembly of states parties to think about 
um, what to do about implementation. And there are a couple of parallel processes happening as well, one of which is looking at this principle of complementarity that Sam mentioned, which is what degree of deference should the court be given to states that are engaged in some kind of an accountability exercise for crimes that were committed on their territory, but maybe it's not perfect. And so the, the UK was recently subjected to one of these preliminary examinations for potential custodial abuses or alleged custodial abuses in Iraq during the following the invasion in 2003. The UK set up an enormous process to examine those historical allegations. There were a number of very high profile international criminal law um, specialists that were devoted to reviewing those. Ultimately, no new cases were filed or opened as a result of that historical review. The prosecutor, meanwhile, kept that matter under consideration for quite some time, only just recently finally closed it, conceding that while the process wasn't perfect, the UK had um, worked carefully and the, the decisions to be made were not completely unre unrealistic or un unreasonable. And so ultimately closed that matter, but it took quite a bit of time. The UK was under a microscope for a, a lot of time. It created a little bit of a backlash within um, the public and civil society. And so the question is, could that matter have been done more quickly? And mm -hmm. so looking at complementarity and how, how that principle operates is another subject of consideration by the Assemblies of States Party. Uh, Beth, thank you. And, I, and I, as you said early on, the, the report is, you know, quite broad with a number of recommendations, both within and sort of um, outside the ICC. Um, Sam, I think your background will resonate with a, a many people in the audience. Um, you were a line prosecutor at the ICC. Prior to that, you had practiced domestically in the United States, and then afterwards, you're practicing now domestically in New Zealand, do you have some view as to whether some of the recommended reforms from a line prosecutor's perspective make sense? Yeah, sure. I mean, um, plenty do. I think the, the kind of inherent challenge that the court faces is the one Alex outlined, which is um, its, its powers to investigate and to compel the production of evidence are, are very limited. So it has this very ambitious remit which says, uh, we want you to kind of oversee two thirds of the nations on earth and investigate and prosecute the most serious and most difficult crimes. Um, but we're not gonna give you many tools to do it really. You don't have a police force. You can't compel the production of evidence. Uh, you can't arrest people, um, you know, slap you on the back, go out, good luck, see how, you, see how it rolls. Um, these are really, really, really difficult cases, really difficult. Uh, so if you if you take a domestic analogy, they are um, akin to the most complicated racketeering cases or organized crime cases. And it goes to the point that Alex was mentioning before with the comparison to the ad hoc tribunals, tribunals set up for one particular situation, say Yugoslavia, Rwanda, Kosovo. The benefit of those tribunals is they have a long time to uh, embed in a situation, country um, and culture, and just work out how things work, who, who the people are who you need to talk to to, to find the evidence. Um, and with the ICC, because it is spread um, relatively thin, as Beth mentioned, uh, it's very difficult to do that. So you'll, the ICC will need to spend um, months and sometimes years in a new situation country, just working out how the, the country operates, where, where you can get the, where you can get access to information and evidence, what the risks are in those countries, uh, and just the practical steps are very difficult. So there are some inbuilt challenges. Um, just to take one example, uh, Alex mentions the Ongwen case, uh, Kony's right, uh, one of Kony's right-hand men. That's a case where that situation was referred to the court by uh, Uganda. So Uganda said, um, these crimes are happening in, a, in effectively a lawless area of Uganda that we can't reach as a, as a nation. Uh, International Criminal Court, we'd like you to investigate and, and perhaps prosecute. Uganda was entirely cooperative with the court and really wanted the court to succeed there. As a result, the evidence in, that such, in, in those cases is really good. So there's the evidence that might be familiar to national prosecutors, uh, radio intercepts, um, eyewitnesses, that kind of stuff. 
in contrast, the case that I spent most of my time as a prosecutor on, uh, the case of Uhuru Kenyatta, the current president of Kenya, uh, when, when we indicted him, he was uh, a senior national politician. After he was indicted, he became the president of Kenya. One of the items of information we wanted was uh, his phone records for the relevant period and his bank records for the relevant period. To get those records, we had to ask Kenya to hand them over. At the time, uh, the president of Kenya was the defendant. And unsurprisingly, Kenya said, mm, not so much. We're not going to hand those over. And you, you have no ability to do it. You can't just roll in with a search warrant at 5 a.m. in the morning and, and snatch the things. It, it's, a real, it's a real challenge. So, so the recommendations are good, yes, uh, but at the end of the day, they can't change the, the way the court is set up. So I, I think um, that the major challenge for the court is maintaining independence and maintaining relevance while focusing on um, what's possible and achievable. So taking cases that are um, achievable while still important. Thanks, Sam. I think that's a, just a terrific example of the challenges faced there. Um, everyone, I just want to let, let you know that Beth uh, put up the link uh, to the independent report in the chat room. Um, Alex, uh, considering your experience overseeing investigations and then prosecutions at the ICC, which recommendations do you see as uh, most important for its success? Well, I, to, to build on what both Beth and, and Sam have just said, I, I think the most important recommendation, there are, there are a lot of important ones, but for the prosecution and, and really I think for the success of the ICC, the most important one is focus. Um, the, the, the court cannot succeed in six, seven, eight investigations at once. Um, it, is, it is just, a, 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 as Sam was saying, uh, it's for, for success, it's important to be able to dig in, develop, develop, evidence and, and, and so forth. Um, and with the resources that the court has, which is not that different from one of the previous ad hoc tribunals that focused just on one situation, um, I, you know, I think that it would be important to focus on, on a smaller number, a few situations. And it's not just the number, but the, but the type. And, and, and here again, build, building on what Sam said, um, the court, it, it, the, the court really has to look for opportunities where success will be possible, where there will be cooperation. And those exist. It's not a hopeless situation. Um, it's just that it's not, it, it's, it's very episodic and it's very opportunity uh, driven or should be opportunity driven. Um, uh, because if, if there's a country, if there's a situation where the, where the state or the opposing forces or whatever the situation is, nobody's cooperating with the court. Um, then as Sam said, it's very difficult to get information, get evidence, to get witnesses to cooperate, to get documents, to get telephone records or bank records or whatever it is you need, or, or even access to the country, to the scene. Um, so the court has to, um, the, the court will succeed only if it, if it brings cases. Uh, if it has empty courtrooms, it's not, it's not a success. So it, it, it starts with cases. Cases start with evidence. Evidence can only be obtained if there's access to the evidence. Uh, the court doesn't have the power to just go in and grab it. It has to look for opportunities where parties are going to give it to them, whether, whether it's state or, or non-state actors will give them access to the evidence. Um, so the court should focus on a small number of situations where those factors are true. Um, and then I think uh, that would be a path to, to more success. Um, you know, the issue of cooperation you know, keeps raising its head. And um, Beth, uh, many of us are aware of the recent um, American Society of International Laws Task Force report of which you were a co-chair and that regards the relationship between the ICC and the United States. Um, how does the role of the US not being a state party play into the success of the ICC? Yeah, that's a great question. So I did recently 
finished co-chairing a task force of with, which Alex was a great member of, um, as you can tell, um, that was commissioned by the, ultimately by the Open Society Institute, which gave some funding to the American Society of International Law. And we were asked to look at the arc of the United States relationship with the court and then put forward a set of recommendations for the new incoming administration. And we were operating under a veil of ignorance because we started 15 months ago before we even knew who the Democratic candidate was going to be, no less who would ultimately win the election back in November. And so, um, as you can imagine, <laughs> it's very difficult to imagine a set of pragmatic recommendations for a second Trump administration versus a potential Democratic administration. But that was how we were operating. And so we did undertake very um, wide-ranging consultations with um, stakeholders, both domestically and internationally, U.S. government actors internally current um, at the time, and then also former um, government officials who had worked on the ICC brief over the years. Um, and we ended up putting forward a, quite a long report. I'll, I'll stick the, the link in the chat when I'm finished with this um, particular answer, if, if people are interested, that on the one hand creates a sort of definitive history of this relationship, which really is the theme is a sort of continuity and change. There's a fair amount of continuity there given longstanding US support for issues of promoting the rule of law, human rights, accountability, helping to build ad hoc institutions institutions. The United States was quite played a quite, quite central role back in Nuremberg, which was the founding of the field, and then up to the ad hoc tribunals in the 1990s in terms of funding and seconding personnel and assisting with evidence and information with the capture and, and rendition of um, suspects, etc. The U.S. was very involved in all of those tribunals, um, and even with respect to the ICC as well. But then there were some times when the relationship was quite a bit more tense, particularly in the early days of the Bush administration. There was a lot of um, concern about the court because, and I'll get to this eventually, but the fact that Afghanistan is a state party. And so we had troops on the ground in Afghanistan and there were a number of custodial abuse allegations that emerged out of that situation that potentially brought US persons before the court. So that really created a lot of um, anxiety within the United States government vis-a-vis -vis the court. Now, even at the end of the Bush administration, the United States government had realized that the ICC was many things and was in many cases the only justice institution that would be available. And President Bush in particular was quite seized of the situation in Darfur in the Sudan and what was really an unfolding genocide in the views of many. Um, and so was in this sort of cognitive dissonance on the one hand, a speculative risk vis-a-vis -vis Afghanistan potentially, but on the other hand, you had a live genocide and the US was in a position through its membership of the Security Council to refer that matter to the court because Sudan is not a party, but the Security Council, as Sam mentioned, can refer matters even with states that haven't joined the court. And so ultimately allowed, the US allowed that referral to go forward because President Bush cared more about ensuring that there was justice in Sudan than this sort of speculative risk posed by the Afghanistan situation. So a report traces the history, but also the really important interests that are implicated by the court. And we ended up put, putting forward four buckets of recommendations. The first really related to recasting the tone. Um, the Trump administration was another low point when it came to US ICC relations. You may have followed this in the news, but President Trump issued an executive order that created a sanctions regime and then two professionals from the court, former colleagues of Alex and Sam, were both designated as um, receiving sanctions. And so the chief prosecutor of an international institution could had to carry bags of cash around because she, you know, it was hard to use a credit card because it's connected to a U.S. bank and U.S. banks were barred from doing business with sanctioned individuals. And so it was a very unfortunate situation, it created a huge backlash, as you can imagine, within the international community, um, not just within the assemblies of states parties, but even num the number of non-party states. Um, you know, we're on record as saying how inappropriate this was. And eventually the Biden administration did remove that executive order, but you know, that was sort of a new low. So our first set of recommendations were basically, we need to recast the tone, have a sort of a proverbial reset when it comes to the relationship with the court, bring down the rhetoric, et cetera. And we've seen that coming out of the Biden administration, even you know, without the benefit of our report, I think that was instinctually the way in which that administration, which cares a lot about multilateralism, working with friends and allies, et cetera, they, they came to that same decision. 
The second set of recommendations refers to all the ways the US has supported international justice efforts in the past. And we put forward a number of recommendations about how we can strengthen those um, contributions to the system. The third set of recommendations concerned the tough issues. So one being Afghanistan, the second being how the US can participate in this um, review and potential reform process. And then third, which we haven't really talked about yet, but concerns the situation in Palestine, um, which itself purported to ratify the ICC um, statute. Its instrument of ratification was accepted by the Secretary General. And so it's a, a member, although there's still open questions about whether or not it's a state and if it's a state, what it, the full reach of its territory is, et cetera. And although it doesn't implicate US persons, it implicates a, a strong ally of the United States that has a strong domestic constituency here, um, both within the public and then also in Congress. And so we have a set of recommendations regarding those sort of tough issues. And then the final bucket is how the US could be supporting the court moving forward, thinking about how to getting, getting back to a more cooperative relationship where when, when the situation is consistent with US policy, for example, in the Central African Republic, where we have inter-ethnic and inter-religious violence, the US has supported accountability there, the ICC is there, we should be supportive, we should be providing information, we should be providing security assistance, we should be sharing techniques and um, technical assistance, all of the ways that we've supported international institutions in the past. And so that's where the, the report lands with a set of these very concrete and we hope pragmatic uh, recommendations. That, that's great. And, and you know, as you said, under the Bush administration, there were certain concerns about Afghanistan. Um, and I would just like want to delve a little bit deeper into that with you, Alex, if you can talk about you know, the current circumstances with Afghanistan and the ICC and how that might strain the relationship with the United States. So um, I, first I will, first of all, I, will, I would really commend the report that Beth mentioned, um, the ASIL report about the US and the ICC, if you're interested in that relationship. Um, I think it's a really terrific report. And I can say that because even though I was played a small role on the task force. It was Beth who wrote it along, along with the other co-chair, uh, Todd Buckwald, and they did a really terrific job on it. It's really, I think it's really a terrific report. Um, the Afghanistan situation is a, is a uh, enormously complicating factor for the relationship between the United States and the International Criminal Court. Um, Afghanistan became a, a, a state party of the International Criminal Court uh, effective in May, 2003. Um, and the ICC began monitoring and investigating, or kind of watching the situation, not actively investigating, but monitoring the situation not long thereafter. Um, and in uh, a couple of years ago, the prosecutor uh, decided that there was sufficient evidence to open an investigation in Afghanistan. And including, included within the scope of the investigation were um, uh, alleged crimes committed by the Taliban, um, alleged crimes committed by the uh, Afghan government, um, but also alleged crimes committed by US forces, um, in particular um, military um, and also CIA. Uh, and the, the jurisdiction is not limited to Afghanistan because uh, the, it, as it turns out, there are also three countries where black sites were located, uh, which were also members of the court, Lithuania, Romania, and Poland. Um, and black sites operated by the CIA uh, during the time 2003, 2004, 2005, or the, that time period um, where there were allegations of torture, uh, those also fall within under the jurisdiction of the court. Um, and the, the, so the prosecutor uh, wanted, sought permission to open the investigation, had to go to the court. Um, the, that was a, a, a multi-year uh, litigation process because the pretrial chamber initially said uh, no to the investigation um, uh, because it found that there wouldn't be sufficient cooperation and, and, and chance of success. Um, the appeals chamber overturned that because finding, I think quite properly, that that's not a judicial consideration, but a prosecutorial discretion uh, matter along the lines that we've been talking about in this discussion, that that's for a, an assessment that the prosecutor might wanna make, um, but it's not a, limit, a judicial limitation on the, power, on the power to investigate. So now the investigation is about to begin. Uh, this 
the investigation of the U.S. part is un, uh, is unwelcome uh, by the U.S. Uh, it's been unwelcome by all administrations. Uh, the Bush administration, the Obama administration is not, uh, and you know, uh, Trump obviously now the Biden administration. It's not. It's not a welcome development. Um, it's hard for me to see how there will be success uh, for the ICC in conducting an investigation of. Um, the allegations of um, abuse and torture, uh, not to say that they didn't happen. Uh, the report that uh, Beth was talking about, um, you know, acknowledges and uh, as, as must be acknowledged that those abuses occurred. Uh, obviously the government, the, the President Obama himself said that people were tortured and there's uh, substantial documentation and evidence of that. Um, but the question is not whether it occurred, but the best mechanism to address it and whether it's appropriate for the and, and right for the International Criminal Court to do so. Uh, and there's a lot of debate about that, uh, uh, about whether that's the right thing, whether that's the role for the court. Um, I, for me, in thinking about the court, how the court can succeed, which is what I want to see, I want to see the International Criminal Court succeeding. I don't see a path where that brings success for the court. I don't see how that will ultimately work out well for the court um, because it, it's impossible to imagine that it, with the position of the United States, it's impossible to imagine that the court is going to be able to develop cases and have um, people uh, brought to the Hague. Um, however you think that might be a good idea or a bad idea, it's hard to imagine that's going to happen. So for the court to embark on that and use its resources on an on a, on a investigation that has such little, uh, virtually no chance of success, it, do, it doesn't seem like a good use, a good way to build up the court at this time. Um, but this is an enormously, this topic, this investigation is a sticking point between the United States and the court in terms of whether the court can, the US can find other ways to cooperate with the, with the court, with help build up the court, even if it's not a member of the court, um, this, will, this investigation will likely stand in the way, at least in the short term. Um, so Beth, I have the same question for you. You mentioned Palestine. How, how is that investigation gonna bear on the relationship? Yeah, it's also a complicating factor, I think, just given our close relationship with Israel and the number of individuals within the US who really care about um, Israel through various family, religious connections, et cetera. Um, because Palestine purported to ratify, um, you know, that territory falls within the court. Now, there has been a preliminary ruling in that regard that can be revisited, I think. And if certain charges go forward, I could imagine that defendants would want to challenge the question about whether or not Palestine is a state for ICC purposes. And if so, what are the outer boundaries of that state? Because we know the boundaries are supposed to be subject to the peace talks in the event that those are ever revived again. They're the subject of negotiation. And so that's an open question. What the um, ICC determined, at least in this preliminary ruling, was that it would cover Gaza, the West Bank, and then that would include East Jerusalem. So at least with respect to this preliminary ruling, that's the territory at issue. Now that encompasses two kind of clusters of potential allegations. One would be potential war crimes committed during the Gaza hostilities, and that would implicate both Palestinian actors and Israeli actors. Um, obviously, there are you know, missiles being lobbed from Gaza into civilian areas within um, Israel, for example, that would fall within the potential jurisdiction of the, of the court and of the prosecutor. The second set of allegations or cluster would be the settlements policy. And these two sets of allegations are postured quite differently. When it comes to the Gaza situation, Israel has a very active military justice um, process. And so those, to the extent to which that there have been concerns about um, targeting of civilians, et cetera, those have been subject to investigations. And so this could trigger Sam's point about complementarity. Could the court or the prosecutor exercising discretion determine that Israel had done enough in that regard? It's not clear that the Palestinians have done much in terms of holding individuals responsible for those acts um, from Hamas, for example. Um, the settlements are a different story because as we all know, that is part of Israeli formal policy. And so there won't necessarily be investigations about those settlements and to the degree to which they might constitute a crime against humanity, for example, or war crime committed within um, a situation of occupation. And so that will be subject to investigation, potentially, potential charges, and then those charges
charges would be contested by any particular defendants. Israel to date has not really formally participated in the court, but the understanding is that there are informal interactions with the prosecutor's office and a very um, important white paper was released by the government putting forth its, gov its positions. The prosecutor then filed that report into the court and so the court has had the benefit of Israeli views. But it will be interesting to see to what extent both Israel and potentially the United States, if US persons are within the sights of the Office of the Prosecutor, to what extent that they would be willing to participate formally or will try and get their views made through other more informal channels, including using, for example, proxies to make particular arguments for them. So this is all uh, in the future, but I think both of those situations touch on acute US interests. And so that will complicate the ability of the United States to engage in other forms of cooperation, even in those situations that it really cares about justice, it's promoting justice, it um, is supporting other justice efforts happening at the domestic level, et cetera. You know, Beth, I'd, I want to stay with you on one more area. You know, many of us know that you're very familiar with the events in Syria. Um, can you give us your view as to whether the situation in Syria would be a good fit for the ICC? Yeah, it's a great question because in many respects, Syria is precisely the kind of situation that the ICC was designed to deal with, right? Massive international crimes, no prospects for domestic justice, et cetera. There was an effort back in 2013-14 uh, to refer the matter to, to Syria through the Security Council. Predictably, Russia exercised its veto and prevented that from happening with China in tow. Um, like Russia has vetoed almost any measure of any consequence coming out of the Security Council with respect to its sort of client state um, in Syria. And so on the one hand, you know, I think a lot of justice advocates were quite disappointed by that. I have argued, and I think others have as well, that at some level, the crime base is so enormous within mm -hmm. the situation in Syria. We now have a decade of war and war crimes, crimes against humanity, that really the best model would be an ad hoc tribunal that could do what Sam and, and Alex have spoken about, really dig in, really understand the vectors of violence, really understand the chain of command and the order of battle, really understand the multiple you know, opposition armed forces, those in the more moderate democratic opposition, and then those associated with ISIL, Daesh, and other more terrorist oriented organizations. It's an incredibly complex battle space. And so the ideal would be a dedicated tribunal. Now, the question is, how do we create that when we don't have the Security Council to do that, and we don't have the consent of the territorial state. Those are the two routes that prior ad hoc tribunals have, um, have been created through. And so a third model has emerged, which harkens back to the old um, the, the Nuremberg model, which would be interested states, including states of the region, but also sort of good Samaritan states, the Europeans, the United States, other states that care about justice, could potentially, we could envision them pooling their individual domestic competencies, creating an international institution, empowering it to investigate matters within Syria, and then potentially moving forward with cases. This institution would have all of the same constraints that the ICC does in terms of its ability to exercise any forms of coercive enforcement mm -hmm. jurisdiction, but legally the, it could be established. And of course now what's lacking is, is the political will and the resources to do so. Um, thanks. Um, I just wanna backtrack a little bit here, and this is for all three of you, in light of the audience that we have, which is primarily American, um, can you comment on why the U.S. should care about improving its relationship with the ICC? Alex, do you want to start with that? Well, I mean, the United States has a, a proud history, um, you know, which Beth has alluded to, of, of um, strong commitment to international criminal justice. It's, it's, it's been one of the prime movers in the field. Um, obviously, it was um, one of the main actors in making Nuremberg happen. Um, when the ad hoc tribunals were established, um, it was a prime mover in both uh, getting them created um, and in making sure that they succeeded with political backing, um, with resources, with sending people to, to support them. Um, Kim, you were a, a, an important person at the uh, a prosecutor at the Yugoslavia tribunal um, with much success there. And um, so I, it, 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 it is part of our, um, you know, it's part of our tradition and it's part of what we stand for that we, we 
uh, want to see justice done where atrocities, mass atrocity occurs. Um, it's also, uh, I mean, that's the most important thing, but it's also in our strategic interest. Um, and um, I think Beth, is, Beth has written about this and has thought a lot about it and can speak to it more than I can, but, um, you know, it, 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 uh, um, it, it is important to alliances and to um, our, our, our partnerships in the world to um, support justice and to support, um, uh, you know, peoples who are fighting for justice. Um, it, it, it is strategically helpful for our alliances and our relationships with other countries. Um, so it's, it's smart, it's, it's both the right thing to do and it's smart foreign policy. You know, Sam, I'm gonna to turn to you because you are the only um, non-USC here. And, and I wonder what your view is on that. You know, why uh, should, why does, whatever the US thinks about this, why does it matter so much? I literally can't say anything to add on what Alex did, what Alex said there. That, that's the perfect answer. I mean, first it's the right thing to do. Second, it's the smart thing to do. Um, but just to emphasize the second point, there, there is risk to the United States um, if it were to um, submit to the jurisdiction of the court. No question about that. Uh, US troops have an outsized um, responsibility in terms of peacekeeping and security around the world. So there's more exposure there. Um, on the other hand, it has a very low risk in terms of the court actually prosecuting US citizens because of that complementarity regime. Remember, the US, uh, the ICC can only, its jurisdiction only kicks in if a domestic state is unwilling or unable to prosecute. Um, the US domestic justice system is incredibly robust. Mm -hmm. And uh, in terms of military justice, the, um, the US takes alleged crimes by its service members very seriously and investigates them. Um, and, and prosecutes them. If it does that, the ICC prosecutor is disarmed and has no ability to, to prosecute. So I think if, if you compare that to the other big player non-member states, say China and Russia, the US is in a qualitatively very different position. It is a, it is a good actor uh, globally in terms of uh, in terms of international justice. So yeah, again, as Alex said, it's the right thing to do. It's also the smart thing to do from a purely yeah. self-interested domestic point of view. Uh, thanks, Sam. Um, one more US-centric question and only because it's timely. Sam, you mentioned this early on, but uh, what is the significance of the US's recent acknowledgement of genocide of the Armenian people? Beth, you can start that. Um, well, there's no jurisdiction before the court over those events. They obviously long predated the establishment of the court and the court's jurisdiction is prospective only. Um, but it is important symbolically. This is something that has been a sort of bugaboo within US foreign policy for years where a number of candidates on the campaign trail have promised to acknowledge the Armenian genocide. And then once they get into office, the pressures put on them by Turkey and the importance that Turkey plays within strategic relationships sort of eclipses those earlier promises. Um, and so the fact that Biden made that promise and now has um, made good on that promise is quite interesting. And I'll, I'll throw in the chat an article that a student of mine recently wrote, setting forth the long history and the back and forth on this um, situation. The U.S. does have a, a bit of a practice of acknowledging genocides. And um, I'm actually on a panel next week um, discussing about this very question, sort of when does the U.S. do that? Under what circumstances should we be regularizing this process? But, um, you know, there is usually an internal um, interagency process that will determine whether or not the standards have been met. And if so, whether or not there are strong policy reasons to go on, on record as to acknowledging the existence of a genocide. On the one hand, we may cheer these sort of results, but on the other hand, I'm a little concerned that this, this fixation on genocide um, overlooks the fact that mass violence writ large is important and we should care about it. And the idea of crimes against humanity that Sam so ably defined for us is are just as serious under international law. And so we shouldn't be fetishizing necessarily the genocide issue, but there is a treaty and it does make certain obligations on states to prevent genocide. And so that maybe triggers some special consideration. 
That's great, Beth, thank you. Um, you know, just one more question, Sam, and I'm gonna turn to you as you were a line prosecutor and we now have a new um, newly elected ICC prosecutor coming in this summer. Um, we've spoken about the successes of the ICC and we've spoken about the challenges of the ICC. What do you think that new prosecutor needs to bring to the table in order to ensure that the ICC lasts for many decades to come? Uh, first and foremost, a sense of pragmatism, I think. It's very, very important to get success, successes for the court. Uh, and I think as a prosecutor, successes mean wins. They mean runs on the board. They mean convictions. And uh, um, Prosecutor Khan will have to balance the, the, the desire to bring winnable cases uh, with the need to be fearless and to, take, uh, and to take on and be seen to take on the really tough situations. So um, I agree uh, entirely with the comments of Alex and Beth uh, about the, the headwinds the ICC would, uh, would face in, in an Afghanistan investigation and prosecution or um, uh, a Palestine, um, Palestinian territories. They're tough decisions to make for the prosecutor because the prosecutor on the one hand says, well, look, I want to win. I want to, I want to get, uh, you know, I want to prosecute winnable cases. So I want to prosecute the Dominic Onwins where countries like Uganda are going to give me radio intercepts and I'm going to get good cooperation. But does anyone know who Dominic Onwin is outside mm -hmm. the ICC? You know, maybe not. And on, and on the other hand, the prosecutor says, well, I also want to be fearless because that's what the court is about. And so I don't want to be afraid of taking on the tough situation countries um, like Afghanistan, like the Palestinian territories. My suggestion, though, is that at this stage of the court's life, the balance uh, should err more towards um, pragmatism, taking on the winnable cases rather than the ambitious cases. Uh, and, and I think uh, the next prosecutor will do that. Um, yeah. He's a person who likes to succeed, uh, and, uh, and I hope he does. Um, thank you, Sam. Um, and Alex, thank you for answering some of the questions in writing. Uh, we do have one more that I think I'll pose to you guys, and it regards Afghanistan. Um, and the question suggests that, you know, there are lots of other uh, nationals who are alleged to have committed crimes in Afghanistan, and yet um, the international law discourse right now appears to be, you know, focused on alleg allegations against U.S. nationals. Why is there that focus? I mean, I think part of it is so many of the early cases that were pursued by the prosecutor actually emerged from Africa. And on the one hand, many of those matters, as Alex mentioned, were self-referred. The states said to the court, we can't handle this matter. It's either in crimes are being committed in spaces that are ungovernable and we don't have our security forces there, or the situation is just too big for our domestic system to handle. We need the assistance of this international institution. And so they self-referred. Some were not the result of self-referrals. For example, the Kenya matter was not um, necessarily one in which Kenya was thrilled about having ICC action there. And the results, we, we heard what, what happened with, with respect to that. Um, and so that created a kind of a backlash that the court was targeting Africa and that this was a neo-imperialist, neo-colonial exercise. And so to a certain degree, I think the prosecutor was quite concerned about appearing more even keeled, that they were not just focusing on weak states or on states within the Southern hemisphere, but in fact were focused on even powerful states. And so kept conversation about and discussion about more Western, Northern, et cetera, forces in their outputs. They, they do regular reporting on the status and progress of various examinations and investigations underway. And I think that was partly what was motivating that to try and signal that we're not just an African court that's focused on African defendants. We are looking at these other situation countries that implicate other nationals, including the nationals from, from very powerful states. Then we have to shift, though, ultimately to the question that you know Sam and others have discussed, which is sort of what, are, what is the feasibility? Does it satisfy complementarity? And I think eventually, um, once the prosecutor has, has to really decide, if I'm going to bring three indictments for the Afghanistan situation, what are those three indictments going to be? And you have the Taliban committing to this day ongoing war crimes and crimes against humanity versus allegations that are now 20 years old with respect to a, a a country that has a very developed 
um, military justice system. It's not perfect, no system is, but there was a process and a response to those allegations. I mean, I can imagine the prosecutor just deciding, I've got limited resources, I need to focus where the demands for justice are greatest. And that has to involve Taliban allegations and other um, you know, terrorist organizations that are operating there. So it remains to be seen. The US, on the other hand, has to remain to a certain degree equanimous, knowing that they're gonna be in the mix for a while and not have that necessarily poison the entire relationship with the court. And that's sort of the ultimate conclusion of our task force um, report. Thank you, um, Sam, Alex, Beth, thank you so much uh, for your time, for your expertise, um, and a real special thank you to Sam for getting up at four o'clock in the morning on the other side of the world to join us. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Kim. Everybody be well. Thanks, Kim. Thank you all Thanks so everyone. much. Thanks for organizing us. Bye, everyone. Yeah.